This is FM 100.5, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's Place to Talk. Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues a search for truth. Good morning to you. Welcome into the action line from WGNS. We are going to be focusing on COVID-19 this morning. And uh, we're going to be first talking with Gordon Ferguson, who is the president and CEO of St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital. Gordon, good morning to you. Good morning, Bart. Good to have you with us this morning. Uh, You also have Sandy Wamsley there with you. Uh, first of all, let's look at uh, the COVID-19 situation. How are we faring here in Rutherford County, and how is the hospital doing? Well, Bart, let me just thank you for giving Sandy an opportunity to, to speak with you this morning. Uh, I can tell you that um, we are extremely busy here at the hospital uh, in terms of dealing with our COVID population, we um, had actually kind of stabled off a bit during the the summer months, but uh, I guess it was around October or so, uh, we started seeing a bit of an increase. And uh, right now, when I look at the numbers for Rutherford County in terms of confirmed COVID-19 cases, we're we're actually just below about 20,000 in terms of total confirmed cases. So we, um, we certainly have seen an uptick in the last um, a few weeks. I, I do believe some of that is attributed to probably the Thanksgiving holiday where folks may have let their guard down a little bit, but uh, certainly our, our hospital has remained extremely busy as I think all healthcare providers in our community uh, who are taking care of this segment of the population. We're hearing so much about the ICU rooms that are available across the state. Uh, Are we looking pretty good here in Rutherford County as far as available rooms? Uh, Yes, I think for the most part. Of course, it it is tight. Uh, Certainly, um, I'm not sure regards to the ICU beds at Stonecrest, but I know here uh, we have 32 critical care beds. And um, I know, for example, this morning, we've got uh, all but two of these beds filled. Uh, It's a very fluid situation. We'll be moving some out, I'm sure, later today to a a floor where the care is uh, less uh, critical care, but still uh, staffed with a very strong ratio of nurses. And then through our ER, uh, chances are we'll see these beds be refilled uh, by the end of the day. But uh, again, we just are doing our best to make sure that uh, we provide the, the best care we can to our patients, which as you can imagine right now with the pandemic and the, the surge that we've seen, that, that does continue to be a 
a challenge, but one that uh, I really appreciate the efforts of our staff for staying in and uh, hanging there with us and um, making sure we're taking care of our community. Now, the first round of COVID-19 vaccinations have been given out to some of the first responders, the first line of defense there, physicians at the hospital. I understand that uh, starting Monday, they were offered also to uh, police officers, firefighters, uh, paramedics. uh, And and what group comes up next? And, And do you have an idea of how they will be administered? Yes, I I think one of the bright things that has occurred this month has been the delivery of the, the vaccine. Uh, we actually um, started our vaccination process last Thursday afternoon, and uh, we have converted the uh, lobby of the eighth floor to be the location where we process uh, the associates and physicians through the kind of registration area. And um, just as of today, we have uh, provided vaccinations to 850 individuals. That's going to be a combination of our own hospital staff as well as physicians in our community that spend a great deal of their time here taking care of patients. I'm not 100% sure uh, where Rutherford County Health Department is, I believe they have started uh, providing the vaccination to first responders, and then they'll work through um, different uh, segments of the population from there. Um, We're going to continue through the holidays to encourage our staff to participate in this. Um, I'll admit my uh, time came up this morning, so I I had my uh, vaccination, the first of one doses of the vaccination uh, earlier this morning. So, um, you know, we we started with those individuals that were most closely caring for uh, patients and particularly our COVID population. And now we're just working through the different uh, levels of staff. And uh, I think the next group that is up for us Uh, includes those that are working in our various outpatient clinics. So the public is going to be getting its uh, vaccinations through the health department, is that correct? Yes, sir. That that is my understanding uh, for right now. Okay. You have a person there with you this morning. Uh, Tell us a little about her background and then introduce us uh, to to your guest. Okay. Sandy uh, Walmsley is one of our directors of nursing. Uh, She works most closely with our maternal child services program, which is extremely uh, strong program uh, in terms of number of deliveries we provide here. But uh, Sandy has actually stepped in to be one of our leaders in terms of the vaccination process. And it, it is a very detailed process that we have to go through in terms of how the vaccination is uh, vaccine is stored. But, uh, yes, Sandy is uh, one of our great leaders here. Very good. Well, let, let's talk with Sandy. And, Sandy, I'm guessing that uh, it, it's a challenge to uh, keep the vaccination at that critical temperature. Has that presented any uh, problems for you at this point? 
Well, you're right. It is. Um, there's a four-step process for actually thawing the vaccine, and we have not um, experienced uh, any issues uh, with the management. Our pharmacy team uh, have become experts and are uh, working with the state and with Pfizer to make sure that we are handling that vaccine um, appropriately and uh, getting it to our, our associates. Now, tell us about uh, the suggestions that you have as we enter the Christmas season. Uh, Christmas is just two days away. Tomorrow's Christmas Eve, and people are going to be getting together. What can they do to make that safer? Well, um, we want to, of course, um, follow our state and our governor's suggestions for limiting the number of people at gatherings and the number of households at a gathering. Um, we know this is a tough time to be away from our loved ones, um, but it's a great time to drop off food and gifts. Um, we can still celebrate with each other. I know my family is uh, uh, have a planned Google Meets meeting. Um, so we are encouraging folks to continue to social distance, wear your mask, good hand hygiene, and just keep your gatherings to a minimal number uh, with a minimal number of households. Sandy, if you would, tell us about what people should do if they get sick. One, one It doesn't have to be COVID-19, but uh, any issues over the Christmas weekend. Uh, is the emergency room uh, a good place for people to come? Certainly, if you are experiencing uh, a temperature, the CDC is now saying um, over 99.7, um, a productive cough, um, you know, and things that uh, you wouldn't be able to handle at a quick clinic or by um, calling your uh, PCP. So we would encourage folks that are having difficulty breathing or a sustained temperature to, yes, to come to the emergency department. Very good. So, And I noticed that uh, for some reason people, I guess out of fear, I have put off going to the emergency room sometimes when they have heart issues, and that is a, a real uh, mistake. Correct, Bart. We want um, we have actually separated those folks that are coming in who are symptomatic for COVID to a separate area of the emergency department, and so it is completely safe to come into our emergency department to be treated to be treated for other illnesses, and we would not want someone who is experiencing strokes or heart attack symptoms to stay at home. Very good. Sandy, we do thank you, and thanks to Gordon Ferguson for joining us this morning and getting us up to speed on what is happening at St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital. Thank you for all that all of you do at St. Thomas. Thank, thank you, Bart. And if I could just add my own words of appreciation to your listening audience. The community has just been great in terms of the expressions of appreciation they've shown toward our staff. Um, even this week, we've got individuals who are donating meals for our staff who are working Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and uh, I can tell you that that means a lot to, to those caregivers that have been working now since March uh, with our, our COVID patient population. So uh, we can't say thank you enough for the support that's been provided. Very good. Gordon, thank you again for all that you do 
and all that St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital does. Have a Merry Christmas. You too, Art. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Gordon Ferguson, the President and Chief Executive Officer with St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital, and Sandy Wamsley from the hospital visiting with us and giving us an update on the situation there. Here at the studio now uh, to sort of give us an update on what we should be thinking about, what we should be considering over the Christmas holiday is Dr. Dan Rudd. Dan, good morning to you. Good morning, Bart. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to have you with us today. Thank you. This uh, we, we started these conversations, it's, it's hard to believe, back in March and still getting stronger. We thought we would be going down at this point. Well, I think that... Um, we did feel like we would go down in the summer, but I was afraid we would go up this time of year. Unfortunately, it seems like it's going up even more than I had expected. And uh, we're seeing uh, Tennessee actually in the headlines for being one of the leading states with new cases. Now, is the virus uh, changing and becoming stronger, or what's causing this? It's multifactorial, I think, um, the virus constantly mutates. It's a um, family of viruses called coronaviruses that change every time they infect a new person. Right now, one of the big concerns is the mutation that has developed in the United Kingdom. And there is um, evidence that epidemiologically, uh, there is evidence that that virus is more contagious now, that doesn't mean that it causes more serious disease. That's two different things. But the virus is definitely becoming a predominant genotype in uh, the United Kingdom. And there's no doubt that it's probably elsewhere now. There's a, an attempt to sort of tamp down travel and increase testing from people traveling from the U.K., but... This variant was first actually identified in September. So it's not really brand, brand new. It's, it's been around since September. Right now, there's over 12,000 different genotypes of the virus out there that we know of. Probably much more. We just can't, haven't been able to test them all. And so I think we're going to, um, we're not really seeing anything that's a shock. This is something to be expected. The good news about this is that this doesn't seem to be affecting the effectiveness of the vaccinations. Uh, the vaccines are targeting the, what's called the spike protein. The spike protein is the part of the virus that basically attaches to the uh, receptors of human cells. And that protein has about 15 different spots on it that our antibodies recognize and form um, uh, antibodies against. And so this mutation that has developed in the U.K. changes only one of those epitopes or one of those identity sites. So I think that the risk of the virus causing more severe disease is very low. Uh, again, I think that this comes back to, you know, what are we going to do now and how do we do it? And the um, 
the fortunate thing is we have the vaccines rolling out. And uh, I think that's that's critical. We need to get vaccinated. Is the disease, which is changing a little bit, is the vaccination going to be able to handle that? I know when we look at the flu vaccination, they try to create one each year to handle the strain that is estimated to be that particular flu. Is that same situation with this coronavirus? No, it's different. And all the evidence now shows that the vaccinations will cover uh, this mutation and all basically all 12,000 mutations that we've identified. So the effectiveness of this whole group, especially of RNA virus uh, vaccines, um, looks like it's in the 90% effectiveness, where the influenza vaccinations are year-to-year vary between 30 and 50 to 60% effective. Now, we have heard that last week uh, the hospital here in town started vaccinating the first-line people there at the hospital, and starting Monday at the health department, they started vaccinating police officers, firefighters, uh, and other first responders. When will the public uh, be in line, and, and who will be the first ones to get those shots? Is that known yet? Oh, yes. It's got, there's a plan that's been developed, and each state is sort of directing their own vaccination program. But in fact, when I leave here today, I will be getting my vaccination immediately after the program. And so uh, I, I, I feel like that it's important to lead by example. There are a lot of people who are afraid of the vaccine. There are a lot of um, stories that have circulated on social media that are just uh, poppycock. They're really ridiculous. And the vaccination is safe. The vaccination is effective. And the vaccination, uh, the ability to, to be vaccinated is going to increase rapidly as these vaccines come online. We're going to see millions of doses out very soon. And I would say in middle February to early March, everybody will be able to get a vaccine. Now, it's going to take time after the vaccinations for the quote, herd immunity to develop. Herd immunity is basically community immunity. And it's probably going to be 60 to 90 days after the people who want to be vaccinated are vaccinated and this community immunity develops. But when the vaccine is given, right now the schedule is a two-dose injection on day one and day 21. And the estimate is that 10 days after the second dose, you can feel you're protected, which would be the equivalent of day 31 from the first dose. So we can expect to see decreases in the numbers, but I'm afraid it's going to come um, after another surge. We're going to see a post-Christmas surge. The estimate now is 84 million people will be traveling for Christmas. That is way overboard. I'm afraid it's going to create this surge that we will see that will be um, 
I hope we can handle it at the hospitals. That's really our main risk. You know, in the beginning, there was talk about flattening the curve. We didn't really know how the virus was going to behave in the beginning. We've had to watch it and and see what happens. And and now we can see that percentage-wise, the risk of dying from the virus is very low. But there will be people who die, and there will be people in younger age groups who die. And so the best thing is to not get the virus. Now, you know, that I'm seeing a lot of it. Uh, this week, I've probably uh, seen another 100 cases, and that's a big surge. I think that's coming from the post-Thanksgiving connections. I think that we'll probably see a little dip, and then after Christmas into mid-January, we'll see another surge. So with Christmas being, and New Year's too, you have a longer period of people being together. Do you think that the surge will be dramatically more than what we're seeing right now, which was Thanksgiving? I think it'll be uh, significant. I I hope it's not going to be dramatically more, but um, it just depends on how safe people are. I think most people do try to follow the rules. And the governor yesterday extended the state of emergency for Tennessee until the end of February. He also gave strong recommendations for holding groups down to no more than 10 people and limiting the households that are together. He did not issue a statewide mask mandate, which I was disappointed that he didn't do. But I feel like that, you know, people are going to still do what they want to do. Uh, I encourage the use of masks. I think they're they're cheap and easy. I think, you know, social distancing, hand washing, all of those things are are very helpful and will help to decrease the numbers. But limiting what you do over this holiday period is going to be something you can actually take into your own hands and do. Now, obviously, people, uh, whether we tell them to or not to, they're going to get together at Christmas. What can they do to reduce the risk of being together as a family, not as just a a group of people from uh, various families, but the whole family, Uh, aunt and uncles coming in from out of town. What can we do to reduce that risk? I think one thing is to have uh, limited numbers of people in the car with you at the same time. The car is a very closed space, and I think that if you can focus on making sure as few people are in a car at the same time as possible, that's a good start. People should drive their own cars. Um, The second thing is, is that people should be very careful at the dinner table. That's an, you know, everybody takes their mask off to eat. People should be spread out at different tables across a a house. Uh, It's not the family connection that we normally think of for Christmas. But this is not the same time. And I think that realizing that is is really important. Um, the other thing is not drinking or eating after each other, passing cups around, uh, sharing serving spoons, things like that. Um, the other thing that I think is important is, is basically uh, something we've talked about before, uh, nasal lavage. Washing your nose out with a neti pot or a a device similar to that every day or twice a day. Uh, 
antiseptic mouthwash, uh, brushing your teeth. I think that, you know, we're realizing now the importance of vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, and even melatonin has become more and more in the news. Uh, Vitamin D is, we've learned so much about vitamin D through this pandemic. So much medical research has has occurred. I mean, we've, we've gone from identifying a virus less than a year ago to having a vaccine for it today. That is historic. That's unbelievable uh, as far as being able to do that. Having a rapid development of a vaccine that is 90% effective has basically required a lot of money, which I think President Trump has put into the system, and it's generated results, which I think is going to be the, the most important thing to bring this to an end this next year. So you're saying take vitamin D. Vitamin D is proven to to be a a deterrent in this. Vitamin D is an immune modulator. Okay. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. Let me explain a couple of things first. This is something that should be taken through direction of your doctor or health care provider. But it's very safe to take in... uh, doses of 4,000 units a day or less. And so I think that anyone can go take vitamin D who um, doesn't have any other severe illnesses in doses of 4,000 international units or less. The people that have to be careful, if they have kidney disease, if they have sarcoidosis, or if they have any unusual cause of high calcium in their blood, then you have to be careful with vitamin D. But for an average person, vitamin D is a safe supplement to take. Our guest this morning is Dr. Dan Rudd, a local physician. We have a text here from a listener who's saying, with the large number of people who have COVID now, the dramatic spike that we've seen, once they get rid of the disease and get well, Will they be immune, and will we start to see a drop in the cases from their immunity? Basically, what the texture is describing is community or herd immunity, Ah, and the answer is yes. But in order to see that drop, we probably will have to reach a prevalence of about 70% of the population, and we're less than, we're around 8 to 10 now. So we're not going to see an appreciable drop in the community spread until we get to that 70, 75% disease prevalence. And the way to do that is through the vaccination. And we have another question here. Good morning. You're on WGNS with Dr. Rudd. Okay, didn't get that one. Our number is 615-893-1450. You can talk or text whichever you prefer, the questions dealing with COVID-19 and also dealing with tomorrow being Christmas Eve, families getting together. How important is it to wear a mask at family get-togethers? The more you wear it, the safer it is. I know it's inconvenient. I know it's not what we consider loving and, and uh, c- comforting to wear a mask around other people that we know so well. But the fact is people will die from this disease. 
and uh, even more than the the ones who died, there'll be many more who are hospitalized. And those people need hospital beds. And we want to be sure to limit the cases as much as possible so that we don't fill up the hospitals with unnecessary admissions. And as Gordon Ferguson had said just a moment ago, uh, we are reaching uh, near capacity at St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital here in town. So uh, it wouldn't take too many additional persons to fill up the beds that we have available now. Exactly right. And they're a valuable resource. And I think realizing the hospital has uh, a difficult time in managing those hospital beds because administration can only do what the patients and the doctors need to do. And if in one day they have an extra 100 people to admit, they cannot build another 100 beds today. It's it's so much more complicated than that. And we have to work within the limits of the beds we have. Now, you are also the physician in charge of the Rutherford County Adult uh, Detention Center and the Workhouse. That has to be a challenge, but you are keeping COVID-19 under control. If you can do it there, it looks like People could do it uh, in the workplace. They could do it in their homes. Uh, what is the secret to doing all of this? Well, first let me tell you that it's, it's kind of a delusion for me to think I have control. I have a little bit of control. But one thing we can do in the jail and the workhouse that we can't do in society is actually quarantine people. We can test them. Now, one of the things because of... Si- our, individual civil rights anybody even in jail can refuse a test but they cannot refuse to be quarantined and so we can identify symptoms and quarantine people and also we we are aggressive in our management early Uh, we watch people very closely and we currently have a spike in cases but fortunately uh, we've not had any new hospitalizations. We have a text here from a listener who says uh, they've been confused by some of the symptoms that uh, they seem to be changing. What are some of the symptoms people could be aware of that makes them know that uh, they may have COVID-19? Well, the symptoms are, are not really changing. I think that they are getting different amounts of press. Uh, the symptoms that, that I see that signal to me that someone may have COVID-19 are fever. We know fever occurs in about 30 or 40 percent of people, not 100 percent. Headache. Often people complain of a really bad headache that will last a few days and be different than what they've had before. Changes in their sense of taste and smell. And that's because of the way the, way the virus affects some of the nerve cells in the nose. I think that uh, symptoms of what's called rhinorrhea, which is just a runny nose, a sore throat, a cough. You can have uh, shortness of breath. The disease is divided, the way I like to think of it, into two phases. We've got the initial phase of the first seven days, and that seven days is the, the viral phase. That's when the virus is actively multiplying. That's when the person is contagious. Then 
the immune phase where the immune system is doing its work. That's when you really get sick. And the people that do well handle it well in the viral phase. They beat it down. It's over. The people who have immune dysfunction end up with this longer course of disease. And in fact, we know that when you look at mortality or deaths from the disease, you really have to look at day 28 to see how many people are going to die. That's kind of the the range is out to day 28. So the vast majority of people catch the virus, respond to it in a week, and in 10 days, they're not contagious and they can go back to work. But if they prolong and, and continue, uh, they have a problem. They do. And I think that the the way to, the way the CDC has directed this is that at 10 days, if you're still taking fever-reducing medicine or your symptoms are moderate to severe, you can still have a sore throat a little bit. You can have a headache. But if you have shortness of breath, cough, uh, and you're really sick still, you're probably still contagious, and you have to go longer. And 14 days is recommended initially, and then a reassessment, and then maybe 21 days. Now, people who have additional uh, morbidity, they have problems like uh, obesity, uh, heart disease, diabetes, immunologic diseases such as cancers, they can go for extended times. And in fact, there's a group of people that are termed the COVID long haulers that can actually have symptoms for four to five months afterwards. And that's something that it's hard to predict initially, but it does happen. Here's a text from a listener who says their family has experienced uh, at least one case of of COVID-19 and the children have both tested positive, but now uh, they have tested negative after a few, about 10 days. Uh, Are they really out of the woods? Uh, One of the parents still is positive, uh, but the children are negative. Uh, Should they be cleared and be able to get out of quarantine? At 10 days after the test that you tested positive, if you have no fever and your symptoms are minimal to mild, you can go back out. You can remove yourself from quarantine if you're you don't really need a retest at 10 days it's based on symptoms not testing ah okay uh, we have another question here this one said i've tried the fast test and i got back a negative and then i still felt bad and went back and took the uh, longer test that takes a while to get an answer and I was positive on that. Which one should I believe? Believe the positive. The positive one is correct. The, the fact is, when you do a test, it's a snapshot in time. And the only real way to know is to test every day. Now, that's not possible. We don't have the availability, and the cost is prohibitive. And so you can't do that yet. Now, they, they are developing tests that they, quote, call lick-a-stick. 
that basically you just lick it every day and it it's uh it can identify a large amount of virus but not a small amount uh but we don't have that out yet but basically if you have a positive test and you have symptoms to suggest the disease that is almost a hundred percent bet you have it now we been noticing that uh, with the health department, they have been giving the test, and I understand they're in a a period of transition where they're going to be using their staff to give the vaccinations, and switching over to individuals still can get the test on certain days, but they are self-administered tests. is is that a good way to do things? I mean, it's it, well, it's difficult because the best way to test is what's called the nasopharyngeal swab, which is very hard to do to yourself because you have to basically stick that swab back in your nose all the way to where it touches the posterior pharynx. They call it a brain biopsy. It's not, but it's like it it. It requires a lot of diligence to be able to get back there on your own. So a self-administered swab is less likely to produce uh, true results. So we're going to possibly run into some erroneous answers right. with, with this. So this could give us uh, another false image of what's really happening. It's possible. Okay. So let's let's look at some more of these areas. Uh, what lies ahead? Uh, we're getting, we now have two vaccinations in Tennessee. Uh, and is it divided up by counties as to which county gets one and which county gets the other? How is that uh, handled? I, I don't know for sure, Bart, about that because this is basically administered through the state. And the way I look at it is it doesn't matter which one we have. If you can get it, take it. You know, the one that I will be getting today is called the Moderna vaccine. Um, It's the second one to come out. But I have no preference and would take uh, the Pfizer vaccine if that was the one that was available today. Uh, I think we have to realize they're all very similar. They're all very safe. And the main thing is to remember which one you took. Well, you'll get paperwork because you'll have to get a second dose. Oh, okay. That's what I wanted to yeah. be sure. It has to be the same as the first. Yes. Good morning. You're on WGNS with Dr. Dan Rudd. Good morning, Bart. Good morning. I have a question. That, uh, I call it the spit test, where you have that tube, where they have you to spit in that tube and shake it up. How accurate is that test? That test is less accurate than the swab, but still, still very helpful. If that's the only test you can get, I would get that done. But it's not as accurate as the swab that goes back through your nose. All right. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Uh, where, where do you get the swab test still? Are they? Uh, Actually, there's one that's been approved by the FDA for, that's sold over the counter in pharmacies that's about $30. Okay, and so that's what I'm seeing, the drive throughs at pharmacies in the area? Well, you can go buy it yourself. You don't even have to, I mean, you can go in and buy it. And, and then take it home and, and do it yourself. Do you have to go in through the nose for the... They give you a swab and tell you what to do. Okay. 
Yeah, good luck. <laughs> All right, good luck. Okay, that sort of gives us a clue right there as to the difficulty it right. might bring. Uh, as we continue to, here, here we are the day before Christmas Eve, and uh, everybody's concerned. Uh, everybody's concerned about what will happen, what will be the outcome. When will we know if our family made it safely through the holidays? Uh, how long after that get-together uh, would, would we be seeing signs or not seeing signs? Well, the incubation period of the virus is 3 to 14 days. So 14 days after the last uh, get-together is when you would know. So if you can make it 14 days, you're free. Well, you could get exposed anywhere, any day. But, you know, any particular exposure has an incubation period of up to 14 days. Good morning. You're on WGNS with Dr. Dan Rudd. Good morning, Bart, and good morning, Dr. Rudd. Good morning. And thank you so much for taking the opportunity to uh, help the community the way you're doing. Um, I have a question for you regarding the after COVID-19, you positive, you've come through this, the side effects. I have a good friend of mine that has had it, and he is complaining about some things even after three or so weeks that he's clear of it. And, uh, I mean, I know some people have had it before, and uh, and y'all probably done enough study to determine months afterward. Uh, he's complaining about joints and stuff like that. Could you touch on the side effects for a little while, Doctor? Yes, sir. Um, basically, you're describing what's termed the long haulers syndrome from COVID-19. And... There is um, a lot of study going into this now. There's a belief that this is related to the stimulation of what are called autoantibodies, which are, um, it's kind of a dysfunction of the immune system that allows our immune system to direct uh, antibody production against proteins that are on our own cells. This has been shown to occur in viral infections of different types, in the past, and we're identifying it now with COVID-19. This can be uh, several months uh, in duration, maybe even years, we don't know yet, but it it can be a while. And the treatment of it is uh, really supportive because there's no specific treatment. Here's another text from a listener. It says, I heard a mask to a germ was about the same as a fly to a chain link fence. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? That's a pretty good analogy. Um, I think that masks vary in their effectiveness. And so people that, you know, wear the mask under their nose, it's almost zero. I think that the uh, closer you get to the N95 mask, the more effective they are. Um, That's why, you know, it's, it's a hedged bet. You're doing what you can do to limit it. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that uh, the best thing to do is not even be in the same uh, time zone as somebody infected. But we can't do that. And so the closer we have to get to people, the more protection we need. And the, probably the best thing are the plastic face shields because we realize the virus 
can get in not only through the mouth, the nose, but also the conjunctiva of the eyes. And um, and that's helpful. But but realize that it's it's measuring safety with convenience. And we're always doing that. We're trying to decide what is the most practical thing we can do that's safe, but also not terribly inconvenient. And that's always hedged by the relative risk. And so the more deadly a problem, the more we have to go toward the safety. And I think that we do that in everything we do, whether we're talking about going on a walk in space or we're uh, getting in a car and connecting our seatbelt. Now, you mentioned the face shields. Uh, Should you wear a face shield and a mask or or just the face shield by itself? It depends on your relative risk uh, acceptance. Whatever you're willing to tolerate is probably the best thing to do. Um, You know, there are a lot of people that uh, the mask is, I mean, that's all they're going to do. And I think that's overall, that's a lot better than doing nothing. Uh, wearing glasses with the mask is better. Wearing goggles with a mask is better. Wearing a face shield is better. Um, but at the same time, it, you know, we've got to live. And that that requires um, judgment. We have a, another question here from a listener, a text, and they said that they had heard that one of the possible uh, side effects is an increased risk of dementia after having COVID-19. Is there any truth in that? That has not been proven. I mean, there is, there is a symptom that they call uh, mental fog that can last a few months. And even that has been um, uh, difficult to uh, get data on. We'll know later, but certainly that has been reported to have. But as far as connecting to dementia no, I've I've not seen any data about that. When do you think, based on the way things are going now, with the knowledge that the vaccinations are out there and they're being given out now, uh, and, and knowing what is ahead for everybody, when do you think uh, the curve, so to speak, will start to flatten and we'll be able to start beginning to get back to some normalcy? I think we'll see a dramatic change uh in early March, uh, into February, early March. And I think by summer, midsummer, we'll see this begin to disappear. Uh, and I think we'll probably have a pretty normal fall. Before you leave, when we started talking about this in March, you mentioned that coronavirus itself uh, had the, its normal action was to just fade away. That has not happened yet, here anyway, but they're saying in China it just went away and they're back to normal again. Is that true or did they? Well, that I mean, that's going to happen. Uh, knowing the exact time course that it happens is very difficult, but we know that that will occur, whether we have a vaccine or not. But it's so destructive to our way of life, our economy, and our, really our, our whole world, that all the interventions we can do to accelerate community immunity or herd immunity are what we have to do. And the way to accelerate that going away is with vaccinations, passive immunity, which includes the 
polyclonal immunoglobulin injections that Regeneron is doing. Um, and then the other is time. But time alone would take care of it. It would just be a very expensive time period. So the next few weeks, few months, are going to be the ones that determine how safe you are, how safe your family is. And this weekend, starting tomorrow, uh, you've got some big decisions to make. You do. And I think that, you know, that's one wonderful thing about living in America. We can choose what to do and choose how to be safe. Um, A lot of things we don't get a choice of, but this is something that you can choose. I know it's hard. I know people want to be with family. But if they can get through this year, next Christmas we'll, we'll be back. At least coronavirus will be gone. And we will be able to have a more normal year. And so I want to encourage people to be safe, not only for yourself, but for your community. We have one more question, and this person just sent it in, and I feel we need to ask this one. They say, if if we're trying to do what's best for everybody in our family tomorrow, and we get together and we wear the mask, we wear face shields, would we be better off eliminating eating together and just enjoying Christmas and swapping presents together and uh, having t- fun that way? Would eating together would that eliminate any of the major risks? I think that anytime you take the face mask off, the risks go up. Also, the thing to do is limit the time together. Don't spend hours and hours. And one thing people do in families is also they relax more as the evening goes on. They may have a few drinks, get more casual, start singing, laughing. All of that increases transmission. The thing to do is have a prescribed time end it on time and have everybody go home and limit the number of people riding in a car don't take five or six people home in your car you know let them drive dr dan rudd our guest and i know you have an appointment to get to thank you for sharing your knowledge and information with the public I'm afraid we're going to probably need to be together again into the new year. We were hoping we could change subjects, but looks it's like here this with is us a while. It looks like Bart. I, I, I want to really wish everyone in Rutherford County uh, a Merry Christmas and and a healthy new year. Let's let's get through this together and realize that uh, we all do have an impact on this. Dr. Dan Rudd, our guest this morning, to each and every one of you. Merry Christmas. Truman's next on your Good Neighbor Station.